Welcome back to the 90 Days New Podcast. Today we are taking a look at the book of Hebrews, which is one of the most fascinating books in the New Testament. It allows us to look deeply into some of the reasons behind some of the Old Testament people, places, and events, and it provides a lot of significant material to help us understand the shifts that occurred moving from the Old Covenant to the new covenant that we see in Jesus Christ when he arrived. And uh, so we want to take a look at several elements. This book is very complex in a way, and there is so much material packed into here that you could probably do 90 days worth of podcasts just on this one book alone and not really scratch the surface. Uh, But I do want to hit some highlights today, looking first at the superiority of Christ. I think that's one of the main ideas that comes out of this book. In fact, chapter one opens with that very idea, describing Jesus as far superior to all beings, to angels, and, and all else. He is, of course, the Son of God, and he has a very unique place. Um, as he interacts with creation. The creation is, in fact, his creation. He made it. He sustains it. And so Jesus Christ is not one of the creations. He's not one of the parts of the created order, but rather is over it, is sovereign uh, over it, and has all authority over the creation. But it doesn't stop there. It moves on into uh, some other elements of his superiority, and these become more elaborate as the author of Hebrews uh, begins to describe this, which we'll take a quick parenthetical break and talk about the author. We don't know who the author of Hebrews is. It's been debated since really the Bible was first being assembled together in the New Testament canon, that is, as it was being collected and and pieced together as a whole. Uh, There was even debate back in these early periods about who the author of Hebrews is actually was. And so some believed it was the writing of Paul, and it would be easy to understand why you would think that, um, because there are many expressions uh, in this book that are found in other Pauline writings. Um, There are certain statements that really sound like they come from Paul, and even the people that are mentioned in this book are people that Paul has mentioned uh, in other books. And so we know that Even if it's not Paul, it is a close companion with Paul. However, there are some reasons to maybe steer away from the idea that it was Paul. For one, the Greek used here is the most complex Greek in all of the New Testament, uh, far superior to anything that Paul could have personally uh, written. However, there are times where a biblical author is not the one actually doing the physical writing. He's dictating and saying the words that he wants penned down, but the person doing the writing may be more skilled in, uh, in the Greek language, and so he's able to, to clean up Paul's um, abilities to write in, in a much better way, at least. And so that's one example, and that happens. Uh, there are several um, writings that we know that that's what's taking place. Paul even tells us that he is using an amanuensis, uh, which is a scribe to write what he is dictating. But there's also the possibility that this was not Paul at all. It could be that this was a person closely associated with Paul, someone who knew him well and knew his theology and shared those common convictions, and also, of course, inspired by uh, the Holy Spirit, which was 
one of the things the early church did agree upon. They may not know who the human author was, but they did know who the divine author was, and they agreed that this is indeed an inspired text. And it's not hard to see why. So many truths come out of that, and we're going to move on to more of the superiority of Christ here. And we're going to look at what it says about him as the priesthood and him as the sacrifice. Uh, So we get Jesus takes a couple of roles here as both priest and sacrifice. And that's uh, something that other biblical authors share as well. He's depicted as uh, the lamb of God and also the shepherd. He's the shepherd and the lamb, both simultaneously. And so we get these dual roles of Jesus. And here we have him as priest and sacrifice. And he is a priesthood that Hebrews goes into great depth to describe as being far superior to the priesthood that exists in Israel. And he is far superior in several ways. Uh, For one, he has no limitations. The book of Hebrews describes the, um, the current priesthood that exists and the priesthood that has existed under the Mosaic law as having limitations. They have age limitations. They have limitations as far as their lifespan. They will die. And so they can no longer continue as a priest after they die, obviously. And so this is a a great limitation, but that's not a limitation to Christ because Christ is eternal. And so that makes him able to be a a high priest eternally with no end. And that's something that is necessary, something that we need. For if he were to uh, come to an ending point, then we would have to do this all over again. We'd have to find someone else that could fill that role. Um, But that's not the case. We have an eternal priest who continues and will eternally make intercession on behalf of the saints. Um, He made a sacrifice that was an eternal sacrifice. Hebrews calls it a once for all, once for all. And the reason is once for all is because this was not a sacrifice that was made in a brick and mortar temple somewhere in Jerusalem. Um, This was a sacrifice that was made and offered to God in the real holy place, the true holy place. Um, And I'm going to turn back to that concept and that topic here in just a second. Uh, But before I go to this idea of the real, I want to go back to more uh, evidence of his superiority in the priesthood. They compare Jesus and his priesthood to Melchizedek. Melchizedek is this strange Um, figure that shows up in the book of Genesis during Abraham and Lot and and these um, characters' narrative. Melchizedek is just kind of plugged right in the middle of this battle narrative where they've gone and they fought this war, and uh, Abraham ends up thanking this king of Salem. Now, Salem means peace, and Salem eventually becomes Jerusalem. And so even before we have Israel really formulated, we don't even have the 12 tribes yet. We don't have the nation of Israel. We don't have the Mosaic Law. We don't have King David. We don't have a kingdom at all. This is all like pre-Israel. And during this time period, this strange king of Salem, we don't know where he came from. We don't know who his parents are. We don't know his lineage. We don't know whether he, whether he was born. We don't know that he died. We don't have a record of any of that. So as far as our knowledge is concerned, this guy is not of human descent. He's not got a beginning or an end, and he is the king of peace. And 
Abraham paid tithes to him. This is where our tithe really originates. Abraham gave him a tenth of everything that he had as a thank you, as a gratitude for what this king provided for him in these battles. And the book of Hebrews thinks that that is very significant because all of the priesthood would come from Abraham because every Jew has Abraham as their father. They all descended from Abraham. And so this family tree that would eventually produce the Levites, who would be the priests in the kingdom of Israel, they were, in a sense, inside of Abraham's body still before uh, any of them were born. And since Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, the book of Hebrews makes it clear that the Levitical priesthood paid tithes to Melchizedek. And paying tithes is a way to show that you are, you are in a sense, uh, inferior to that person, that you are exalting that person. It, it can be a form of worship. It can be a form of tribute. It can be a form of, um, of just expressing that this person is above you in some way. And so by doing that, it shows that the Levitical priesthood is actually inferior to the Melchizedek priesthood. And Jesus is said to be established forever by an oath of God, by the way, that shows up in the book of Psalms. And since his priesthood is established by an oath, which is not the way that the Levitical priesthood was established, this makes Jesus's priesthood far superior. And so the whole writing, there, there's more, but this entire several chapters here that begins back at like chapter, really chapter one, I mean, it all is connected and it moves all the way through like chapter nine. We have this entire argument that Jesus is far superior to the Levitical priesthood. He's far superior to uh, the sacrifices that were made in the tabernacle and the temple because his are eternal, his are based on a, an oath of God, his have no limitations, and they are able to seal the deal once and for all. Uh, but that moves us to this idea of real versus type. Uh, because the reason that Jesus' sacrifice is a once-for-all sacrifice is because he went into the real holy of holies. He went into the real holy place of God. He entered into God's presence. When he ascended to God, he entered in there, and now his body, having been sacrificed, exists in God's presence as an eternal sacrifice. It's like a lamb that was sacrificed at the altar of the temple that is continuously there making uh, restitution for the people's sins. And so Jesus is there in God's presence eternally as that sacrificial lamb. And so it forevermore covers sin because it doesn't decompose. It doesn't burn up. It doesn't uh, eventually go away because they carry it out and cast it out. No, he's forever placed there as an eternal sacrifice and as both simultaneously the high priest, an eternal high priest, not in the temple in Israel, not in some other uh, building on the planet, but rather in the heavenly sanctuary. And this kind of brings us back to, like, why, why was there a temple in the first place? I remember 
Early on in my childhood, I had a sister uh, who got an Easy Bake Oven. An Easy Bake Oven is fashioned and formatted after real ovens, uh, but yet kids can bake on Easy Bake Ovens. And so my sister would mix her um, powders together and put it in a mold and stick it in the Easy Bake Oven, and then uh, we would have some cookies. And these cookies were terrible, but as kids, you thought, hey, these are great cookies. We, got, we have the ability to make our own cookies. And so we felt really good about ourselves. We're like, hey, looky here. Um, and it was my sister's toy, but I benefited from what she would make, and I would get to eat some of it. Um, but if you grew up and you're 30 years old living on your own and you still prepare all your food on the Easy Bake Oven, that would be kind of ridiculous. Well, Hebrews kind of makes the temple out to be like that. It, it becomes an, an easy bake oven uh, because it was fashioned after something that's real. Easy bake ovens aren't real ovens. They have a light bulb inside of them to cook. Okay? Real ovens use real flame. They use real fire. And he, the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, the temple and the priesthood and the sacrifices there, they were fashioned after something real. They became types of what's real. And that which is real is the heavenly sanctuary. There is a heavenly sanctuary where God is. And though we say that God lived in the temple, Solomon himself said that the heavens can't contain God. So he did live there in a sense, but not in the fullest sense of that word. He has his own domain, and he is, he is in what we call heaven. And there Jesus went into his real, full presence as the real, full priest, as the real, full sacrifice. And he accomplished there what no Levitical priest could have ever even thought of accomplishing. Uh, so the, the temple and the priesthood find their fullest expression here in the book of Hebrews, not in its earthly counterparts, but in the heavenly counterpart. And, and so that brings us to probably the most important part of the book of Hebrews is this idea of Christian access. Like we now have access to this real holy of holies. Now you would have thought it amazing if you could have walked into the holy of holies of the temple because if you walked in there you died you know but it it was real you could still burn yourself on an easy bake oven in fact is i thought it was kind of a dangerous toy the only one that was more dangerous than that were the creepy crawlers where you took like this goo and you put it into a hot iron and it became napalm inside of this burning furnace that you had as a kid and when you pulled it out you got a little plastic bug that you could choke on and so i don't they don't make toys like that anymore but this was a a like it was serious still even though it was not the real deal even though the temple was not the fullest expression of god's presence it was still serious business and you would have thought it amazing if you could have walked into the Holy of Holies. I mean, the high priest, once a year when he was able to go in there and do that, he must have felt something. It must have been intense. But the fact is now, through Christ and his sacrifice, we now have access to the real Holy of Holies. 
chapter 4, verse 16, chapter 7, verse 19, chapter 7, verse 25, uh, chapter 10, uh, 22 through 25, all make reference to us drawing near. And it, it compels us to draw near based on the sacrifice. And the reason we can draw near is because we are united to Christ. Um, the one thing that's unique about Hebrews is most of the other biblical writings talk about how Jesus is with us. Like we are, we have Christ in our hearts. Christ says he'll never leave us nor forsake us. Um, the Bible says where two or three are gathered. Matthew says where two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst of you. Jesus made that statement. And so the New Testament writings often depict Jesus as being with us here on earth. But the unique thing about Hebrews is it doesn't depict Jesus as being here with us on earth. It depicts us as being in the heavenly places with Jesus. And both are true. It's, it's two sides of the same coin. It's this mystery that we call union with Christ. We are connected with him. Paul even makes this statement in um, Ephesians that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. We are with him where he is, and he is with us where we are, and those are both true. As true as Christ is with us right now where we are, we are with him where he is. And that's hard to understand. That's hard to at least feel um, from a human vantage point, being stuck here in space and time here on planet Earth. But in a sense, we are with him. And so we need to understand that. Now I want to read and conclude uh, with a, a few verses here in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22 through 25. How do we draw near? Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So how can we draw near what does it say that we need to do? We need to have a true heart full of assurance of faith. We draw near by increasing our faith. We draw near by cleaning ourselves from an evil conscience and our bodies to be washed pure water. And that's symbolic of us continuing to, to sanctify ourselves through the reading of God's word, through prayer. We're to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And so we need to continue to, to renew that confession that Jesus is Lord and that he is sovereign over our lives and that we are nothing without him um, because he's faithful. And then it says, let us steer one another up, stir one another up uh, to love and good works and to not neglect meeting together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more. You see, we're not to do this in isolation. We're to do this through corporate worship. These are ways that we draw near to God. It's like, how do I get into this heavenly realm that he talks about? How do I draw near to the true heaven, uh, holy of holies, heavenly holy of holies, uh, by gathering together for worship? It's one of the ways that we do that, by reading the word and by praying. When we come together as a body on Sunday morning, it, it's more than just people getting together and singing songs. We're actually experiencing something that is it's sort of metaphysical. It, it, it exalts us out of our earthly abode into the heavenly abode where we live simultaneously with our earthly presence right now. 
and, and so this is amazing. And then what I see here in Hebrews chapter 12, it's the same thing. Uh, he says in verse 18, we're going to conclude with this, but it says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. This is what happened at Mount Sinai. There was fire up on the mountain. Moses was up there. The people didn't want to see Moses' face. They're like, don't talk to me. You know, they were scared to death. And they, it was unapproachable. You couldn't approach God there. Uh, they couldn't even talk to Moses. He had to put a veil on his face. But it says in verse 22, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in feastal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see, Jesus' blood is better than any other blood that's been spilled. Jesus is far superior, and as we have this uh, assembly of the firstborn, there's that word again, that gathering. You're not neglecting the gathering of yourselves. You're actually gathering together, and as you gather together, you are coming near to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to heavenly Jerusalem. You are coming to a mountain far superior to Mount Sinai, and these superior images and superior expressions of our faith are found in our corporate worship. Not just in our corporate worship, but when we neglect corporate worship, we are neglecting our access to the heavenly realm. And so I'm going to stop there. There's more that could be said, but uh, we'll pick this up next time on 90 Days New.